Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast, or welcome for the very first time. My name is Craig Hadley and I am one of the pastors here at Paradox Church in Redlands, California. I want to say a special thank you to our online donors who make this podcast possible. You can give at paradoxgiving.com if you feel so inclined or not, you know, whatever. We welcome all here. Today we are starting a brand new series in the book of 1 Timothy. And what we like to do at Paradox when we start these series is to give an overview and introduction to the book so that you can become more familiar with the thesis and themes of the writing. Which is why today's episode is entitled, An Introduction and Overview to the Book of 1 Timothy. Let's open the word and just read from 1 Timothy. I will begin in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my loyal child in the faith. So this letter begins by identifying its author as Paul. Now, Paul is quite famous within the Christian tradition because Paul wrote more books of the New Testament than anyone else. He is writing to his protege, a man named Timothy. And you can read about Timothy's story throughout the book of Acts. Now, in the very next verse, we'll find out that Timothy is in a place called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and Paul is writing this letter to him there with some specific instructions for what to do. We read in verse 3, I urge you, Timothy, as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia, to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than the divine training that is known by faith. Now, this is the thesis of 1 Timothy. Paul is writing to Timothy and telling him, I want you to stay in Ephesus and I want you to silence the false teachers. There are some good teachers in the world like, you know, you and me, Timothy, and there are false teachers. And I want you to stay there and put an end to their hypocrisy. Now, while I acknowledge this is the thesis of 1 Timothy, I'm going to call it the weak thesis. And the reason I'm going to use the term weak thesis is because I actually think the thesis is much stronger at the end of the letter. So I'm going to replace it when we get all the way to 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. But we'll use this weaker initial thesis as a placeholder because it helps us to understand the rest of the letter. You see, Paul is going to use seven supporting arguments for why he wants Timothy to stay in Ephesus and what kind of false teachings he wants Timothy to debunk. So let's begin with Paul's first supporting argument. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, these words. Now we know that the law is good, Timothy, if one uses it legitimately. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, good night, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to this sound teaching. 
A few verses later, Paul writes, The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have turned over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wow. It's a rather jarring experience when a pastor or an apostle in this case <laughs> tells others that he turned people over to Satan because he didn't want them to blaspheme. Now, this is the bookends of Paul's first supporting argument in his letter to Timothy. And he wants Timothy to know that the laws that we have are good. The laws condemn those who are disobedient. They remind us that we are sinners and that we need redemption and that we have messed up in God's eyes and are therefore needy of salvation. Which brings us to Paul's second argument, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. In there, he writes, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving should be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this is rather surprising because what Paul wants the people of Ephesus to do is to pray for peace, but not just any peace. Paul wants them to pray for the well-being of their rulers, the state officials, and the peace that they desire. In other words, Paul is asking Timothy to tell the people of Ephesus to pray that they might be compliant in all of the laws. Now, at this point, there should be something going off inside of you that says, something's not quite right here. And that suspicion will be confirmed in Paul's third supporting argument, which is found in chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Paul writes about women and their role in the church. In verse 11, he says, Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. And in the weight of those words, we realize that Paul's third supporting argument is that women should be silent. The fourth supporting argument for this thesis is found in chapter 3. When Paul writes about those who are in charge of the church, he writes, The saying is sure, whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. Now, a bishop must be above reproach. Oh, it's hard for me to even say that out loud without laughing at how ridiculous it is. A bishop must be above reproach. It's out of line for the congregation to go forward before a bishop and tell them that they are in the wrong. Paul continues by saying that a bishop must be married only once, be temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. And so throughout chapter 3, Paul is trying to elevate church leadership to a level that is beyond reproach. In fact, he goes on to beg the people of Ephesus to trust that their leaders have been through an honest and God-fearing process. 
Therefore, they are in charge of you for a reason. In other words, Paul wants people to fully submit to church leadership. In the shadow of that frightening claim, we then move to Paul's fifth supporting argument found in chapter 4. He writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected, provided it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. So if we are willing to read a little between the lines, I think we can understand what Paul is getting at here. Remember, the weak thesis so far is that Timothy is supposed to stay in Ephesus and silence false teachers. Here in chapter 4, we read a little bit about the teachings of those false teachers and how Paul wants those teachings to be brought to an end. Specifically, these false teachers are telling the congregation that marriage is against God's will. Not only that, but they are introducing dietary restrictions like, I don't know, can't eat red meat. Well, maybe they can't eat meat at all. But they are restricting what can and cannot be eaten. And so Paul tells Timothy, hey, we know marriage is good. We know that we can eat all foods. Everything is okay to eat under the sun because God created it all. And so Paul's fifth supporting argument is these people are trying to change the rules. Tell the people of Ephesus, Timothy, that they shouldn't trust anyone who attempts to change the rules. From there, we move to Paul's sixth supporting argument, which is just bizarre. It starts out in chapter 5, verse 3, when he tells Timothy to honor widows who are really widows, <laughs> which <laughs> apparently there are widows who are faking their husband's death. This goes from amusing to rather dark pretty quickly when we read a few verses later in verse 5 that Paul says, The real widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Let a widow be put on the list if she is not less than 60 years old and has been married only once, but refuse to put younger widows on the list for when their sensual desires alienate them from Christ. So what Paul is getting at here is that there are older widows and there are younger widows. And he is annoyed, perturbed, and deeply disturbed by the younger widows who seem to be in no rush to get remarried. In fact, he calls their desires sensual and condemns their behavior for refusing to be remarried. So in his mind, there are real widows and there are widows who are supposed to be more sad by their husband's death, but seem to be just carrying on with their lives quite fine. So the sixth supporting argument in chapter five is honor real widows and condemn false widows. This brings us to Paul's final supporting argument found in chapter six, verses one to 19. Paul writes in verse 1, Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. Whew. It's a tough thing 
when the Bible endorses slavery, isn't it? Here Paul is telling Timothy that the best thing a slave can do is not fight for their liberation, is not practice civil disobedience, but rather is obey everything that their masters tell them to do and to view their masters as worthy of honor. What makes matters worse is that Paul doesn't require anything from those who are enslaving other human beings. He does not ask them to be kinder. He does not ask them to consider liberation. Instead, he puts the onus of change on the slaves and demands that they obey their masters in order to honor God. If that wasn't bad enough, Paul begins to talk about the discrepancies between those who are wealthy and those who are poor. He tells those who are wealthy that they shouldn't be haughty about it, but he never tells them to sell all they have and give it to the poor. Instead, he turns to the poor people and he says, do not desire to be rich because being rich will not make you happy. Pray that God will make you happy with what you have. And when you consider these instructions in combination with the instructions to the slaves, what Paul is saying is that he looks around at the social hierarchy and he believes that it is entirely blessed by God. And rather than fighting for more equality, he has this sense that God wanted all of this inequality to exist and the inequality is good. So looking back at these seven different supporting arguments, the laws we have are good, people should pray that they obey the law, women should be silent, fully submit to church leadership, don't trust people who change the rules, honor real widows, condemn false widows, and our social hierarchy is blessed by God. This book is a bit devastating, isn't it? I am reminded of the immortal words from David Rose who once told his mother on a TV show, okay, I have never heard someone say so many wrong things, one after the other, consecutively in a row. I mean, looking back at all that this book entails from this like overview bird's eye perspective is just staggering. <laughs> it's like, how on earth did this end up in the Bible? And when you look back at all of these supporting arguments, it all of a sudden dawns on us that we still have not gotten to the strong thesis. Because Paul wraps up his letter in 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21 with what his entire desire is behind all of these words. He says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. My friends, the thesis of 1 Timothy suggests that spiritual maturity is found in the preservation of religious tradition and pastoral power structures. I mean, it's just hard to read. 1 Timothy is one of the most difficult books in all of the Bible. The reason for this is because there's so much hatred, so much pain, and so much of a desire to establish authority that it's hard to find anything redeeming or valuable about this book at all. In fact, if you read 1 Timothy from beginning to end, and you came to the conclusion that the Bible might be better without it, I would say I'd have a hard time disagreeing with you. 
But whether we like it or not, 1 Timothy is part of the Bible. And I know it makes us uncomfortable, but I think there's a real valuable lesson to learn from its inclusion in Scripture rather than its exclusion. And to get to that value of including 1 Timothy in Scripture, we have to talk about three different things. The first thing that we have to talk about is that Paul most likely did not write 1 Timothy. I know, I know, I know it says this was written by Paul, but I think it's highly unlikely that Paul actually wrote this book. I came to this conclusion after reading authors like Dr. Margaret M. Mitchell. Now, Dr. Mitchell was at one point the dean of the University of Chicago Divinity School, which is a very prestigious academic position. She once wrote, while most scholars today regard 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus to be pseudepigraphical, which means not written by the author that is claimed to be written by, she goes on to write, there is not complete unanimity on the question. So Dr. Mitchell says that most scholars today believe that 1 Timothy was not written by Paul. However, you can find a minority of scholars who think that Paul wrote this. Now, she, of course, supports her arguments by saying this. She says the conclusion is that 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus were not written by Paul is based upon literary, historical, and theological criteria. So let's go through each of those critiques one by one, shall we? The first one is the literary analysis. If you take Corinthians and Romans and Galatians and put them side by side, scholars will tell you that there are a lot of similarities between the vocabulary that's being used and the sentence structures that Paul employs in ancient Greek. However, if you compare those letters with 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy is using different vocabulary words and very different sentence structures. That brings us to the second argument, which is 1 Timothy presumes a church structure that didn't exist until well after Paul's death. Now, this is important to note because Paul writes about bishops in 1 Timothy. As far as we know, bishops did not exist until 50 or 100 years after Paul died. So it's rather strange that Paul would write about bishops and how they should behave when Paul probably never met a bishop in his life. The third argument that Dr. Mitchell makes is that 1 Timothy emphasizes adherence to tradition instead of Paul's typical theological themes, such as justification by faith. And while all of those are well and good, and far be it from me to refute Dr. Margaret Mitchell, I have to tell you, I agree with all of those things. There's just one more thing that I feel like we need to address. When you consider who Paul was, particularly through the book of Acts, you find that he went from place to place and was constantly under threat of death, not from the non-religious people, but from the religious people. People in Lystra tried to kill him because he tried to change everything. The people of Thessalonica tried to kill him because he tried to change everything. The people of Ephesus started a riot because he tried to change everything. And when we consider who Paul was, according to the book of Acts, 
we can only come to one conclusion. This guy was terrible at guarding what had been entrusted to him. None of the stuff in 1 Timothy is what Paul did in his lifetime. And if he were to stand up and honestly say, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, there would have been an explosion of laughter from all of the religious folks that he made angry because this guy did not do that ever. I don't think Paul wrote this. Here's what I think happened instead. About a hundred years after Paul's life, there were some people who were in the newly formed church that were a few generations deep. There were some men who started rising to the top to become the leaders of the church. They started giving themselves titles like bishops and deacons and elders. And they were looking around at their congregations and their congregations weren't listening to them as much as they wanted to. So they said, how can we get more authority? And they ended up writing a letter. This letter they put under the name of Paul and called 1 Timothy. Now, I believe that these men fully believed that this is what Paul would say to their church in their day and age. But they put the name Paul on it to give it some authority so that they might in turn have some authority. Now, this letter started to make the rounds and people started reading it in wider and wider audiences. There wasn't modern archaeology or modern academia to start to debunk whether or not the letter had been written by Paul. But this letter starts to grow in wider and wider circulation until about 200 years later, around the 4th century CE, when various church councils were meeting and deciding what orthodox Christian belief actually was. Now, there isn't an official moment when this began, but more and more councils started to publish a list of 27 books of the New Testament. And the common criteria that led to these 27 books being chosen is that they were 27 books written by authors who knew Jesus personally, one of which was Paul the Apostle. And so when people believed that Paul wrote the book of 1 Timothy, they included it in the Bible, even though modern scholarship will tell us Paul, most likely, did not write 1 Timothy. So a question we have to ask is if 1 Timothy was included in the Bible because Paul wrote it, what kind of authority should we give it today if we discover that Paul didn't write it? And while we may all have different answers to that question, I think it's an important question to ask particularly when you consider that the majority of scholars are telling us that Paul most likely did not write this book. And that is the first thing we need to remember when studying 1 Timothy. The second thing we need to remember is that Christians wield 1 Timothy as a weapon. You don't have to go too far back in our history books to discover that Christians in America, well, white Christians in America, supported the institution of racially motivated chattel slavery by using the Bible as justification for the evil. They used verses like 1 Timothy 6.1, which says, let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. A few chapters earlier, the author, who is clearly a man, writes this about women. 
I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. And in the very first chapter, we come across one of the six clobber verses that Christians have wielded as a weapon against the queer community. The verse is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. We read, this means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, and sodomites. Now, what's interesting about the translation sodomites is that if you go back to the original Greek, you find that the word sodomites is translated from arsenicoitus. Now, this is an interesting translation because there is nowhere in this Greek word that the city of Sodom is referenced. In fact, this word arsenicoitus only shows up in one other place in the Bible, 1 Corinthians, and it's a word that we can't quite decipher what it means. We know it's sexual in nature. We know it revolves around men. But when we parallel this word with what was acceptable and unacceptable in Greco-Roman culture at the time, it's much more likely that this word, arsenicoitus, was talking about pedophilia than it was about same-sex consensual relationships between adults. However, that did not stop Christians from translating it to read what they wanted to read so they could weaponize this book. The KJV translates arsenicoitus as, quote, for them that defile themselves with mankind. The NIV translates it as perverts, and the NET translates it as practicing homosexuals, while the NASB just translates it as homosexuals. These are poor translations, in my opinion. And what they confirm is that Christians have wanted to use 1 Timothy as a weapon not only against the queer community, but against women and people of color as well. And whenever we talk about 1 Timothy and its value or role in our lives today, we have to be honest that Christians committed a plethora of evil with 1 Timothy in their hands. So no matter what we decide the role of 1 Timothy is, we must remember the history of Christians wielding 1 Timothy as a weapon, and we must seek to make amends, whether we are men, whether we are white, or whether we identify as straight. Which brings us to the third thing we must remember when we're talking about the value of Timothy. And to discuss that, I need to tell you about a church. There is a church called Hillsong, which is a bit of a global empire. They have 150,000 attendees every weekend in 30 different countries. Yes, those numbers are bonkers, and Hillsong is a bit bonkers. You have most likely heard of Hillsong at some point because of the music they produce, and that music has become a movement. The problem is when a church becomes that big, there will eventually be a scandal because, you know, there's like 150,000 people there. <laughs> and so this global senior pastor, a guy named Brian Houston, found himself on the Today Show with NBC trying to defend a number of scandals within Hillsong Church. And Savannah Guthrie was interviewing him and she asked about the scandal at hand and then she moved the conversation to Hillsong's attitude toward queer people. 
She asked, gay members of Hillsong who have had difficult experiences, some who have even said they felt suicidal after their experiences at Hillsong Church, why do you think that has happened? And Brian Houston, the global senior pastor of Hillsong Church said, I want us to get better at the way we communicate and embrace and work with people who are gay. I don't have any personal bias at all against gay or lesbian people. Now, I remember watching this interview and thinking at this point, what? Is he about to say that Hillsong is an affirming church? Because this would be some big news. But then he turned and he said, but unfortunately, as a pastor, you don't represent what you think. You represent what the Bible says. Now, I remember hearing that and thinking to myself, whoa, that's a new one. I've heard a lot of arguments for and against the inclusion of queer people in the Christian faith. And I have never, up until this point, heard anyone say, well, I'm not against it, but the Bible is, so therefore I have to support what the Bible says. And when I heard that, I was thinking to myself, no, you don't. You don't have to support this if the Bible says that you should support it. And you may ask me how I know this, and I would say to you, because in 1 Timothy 6, we are told that we should support slave owners as being ordained by God. And the only response to that is, no, they're not. Slavery is always evil. Not only that, but a few verses before the verse on slavery, we come across a man telling women that they need to sit down and shut up in church. And the only appropriate response to that is, no, no, that's wrong. We're not going to do that anymore. And whether we like it or not, 1 Timothy is part of the Bible. But here's the good news about 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is so bad. It's so wrong. It's so wildly out of place and unethical that it's easy for us to look at all of it and remember to say the word no. My friends, 1 Timothy teaches us the spirituality of the word no. And it's included in the Bible for better and for worse. I get it. But its inclusion is a reminder to me that there are parts of Scripture that when I read it, I have to say no. And you may ask where I get this crazy idea from. And the place I get the idea from, or more correctly, the person I get the idea from, is Jesus from Nazareth. In the book of Leviticus, there is a passage that strictly forbids any contact with lepers. And yet when Jesus saw a leper, he refused to obey that law. He said, no. And he touched the leper in their contagious state and then chose to heal the leper. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And as he is teaching, someone approaches him who has excessive swelling. Jesus stops his teaching and asks whether or not it is a sin to cure someone on the Sabbath. 
Well, everyone there knows it's a sin to cure someone on the Sabbath because that qualifies as work and violates the commandment in Exodus. But nobody wants to answer because they're scared of what Jesus will do next. Jesus says no to the commandment and heals the man suffering from swelling. In the Gospel of John, there are religious leaders who bring a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery before Jesus. And they quote scripture at him. They say, Moses tells us that we should kill this woman. What do you say? And Jesus says, no. He goes on to say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all walk away. And scripture is left unfulfilled. My friends, there is something spiritual about the word no. And while there are times that Jesus leads us into the yes of life, there are also times that Jesus leads us to say no. May we remember that we follow Jesus Christ, not the Bible. And there are times and there is wisdom that is needed to discern whether we are called to follow what the Bible says or to challenge what the Bible has to say and go in the opposite direction. Our calling is to be people who love with great abandon and include those who religion has excluded for generations or even since just yesterday. May we follow Jesus and may we say no to writings like 1 Timothy. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.